Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Dr. Williams is the author of the acclaimed book, Shattered by the Darkness, Putting the Pieces Back Together After Child Abuse. Dr. Williams is on the senior leadership team at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And Dr. Williams travels the United States speaking and training professionals, parents, and victims about the importance of dealing with abuse and personal trauma head-on and not being afraid to break the silence of your own personal pain. Feel free to call in to tonight's show at 888-627-6008 and speak with Dr. Williams and his guests live on air. And now, your host, Dr. Williams. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Breaking the Silence. As you can tell, I am not Dr. Gregory Williams. I am his son, Kurt Williams, and my dad has taken a much, much needed rest tonight. So he has given me the great honor of hosting this show tonight. So it's going to be a little interesting. We're going to have some fun. We're just going to try to stay upbeat and let's just see how the, see how the show flows. Um if you don't know too much about me, I'll give you a little quick bio so you guys can get to know me a little bit tonight. Um, I am, like I said, Dr. Gregory Williams' youngest son of three. It only took them three tries to get the perfect child, but when they got to me, they said that was enough, so they got me. <laughs> um, I have been serving in the United States Army for the last 12 years. Um, I'm a computer intelligence um, NCO inside of the Army, and I am currently at Augusta, Georgia, here for some training so you don't get the quite the best view of Houston, Texas, as he says every week. You're in Augusta, Georgia right now. Um, I currently live with my wife and um, two-year-old daughter, Karina, and um, we live at um, near Seattle, Washington. That is where I'm stationed at, so I've been there for about a year, but I'm down here in Georgia for some quick training, so I've been away from the family for about 30 days, but I'm about to go back home here in a few weeks, so I'll be back with the family, so I'm looking forward that. So again, that is just a quick little bio about me so you guys get to know me a little bit before we start the show. But we have a great guest tonight. This is the second time that he's been on our show, uh, Mr. De La Garza. He was on our show back in July and he did an amazing job that we did not get enough time to talk to him. So we decided to bring him back for yet another show. Um, he is the Executive Director of Recovery Services. So we are looking forward to having him on here in a few minutes. Um, but as my dad does, Every show, every week, he likes to give you guys a couple words of wisdom go throughout the week. And I'm going to try to do one real quick. And I just want to put a challenge out there. Quick challenge for everybody for to, starting today all the way up to next Sunday is do something nice for some random stranger. That's it. Just pay for somebody's food in line. Pay for somebody that's in line behind you in the car. Pay for somebody's coffee. Or just walk over to somebody and say, I hope you're having a great day. But I also want to double down the challenge and don't you don't have to brag about it. You see that on Facebook and see that on social media today is that when somebody does one simple nice thing, they have to make a humongous deal about it, like, oh, look at me, look at me, look what I did. We don't need that. Be that silent stranger that tries to do something good for somebody and move on. And you might just experience that what you do for that one person, that person might go out and do it for another person. And that just rolls downhill of good gestures and love and community. In today's world, that is what we need. Everybody is pitted against each other, Republicans, Democrats, whatever you want to say it as. Everybody is just at each other's throats trying to get the edge up. We don't need that in this world these days. Today, we need to just come together and be one. So that's the challenge from today to next Sunday. Just do one simple, nice thing for a stranger. So again, as I said, we have Mr. De La Garza, and I hope I'm saying that wrong. If he comes on and he starts yelling at me, just know it's my fault. But I'm um, Mr. De La Garza. He's, again, Executive Director of Recovery Services. So we're going to go ahead and bring him on in and welcome to the show. Mr. De La Garza, how's your night going? 
My note is actually pretty good. Good to hear. Good to hear. I am, I am pronouncing that right correctly. No, you got it right this time. Awesome. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You awesome. got it right. You got it right. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So, again, we had you on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, what have you been up to since we last heard from you? Uh, let's see. My role as a AODA therapist changed into recovery and victim advocacy. Um a lot of resisting change and a lot of acceptance with my new role and then finding out that the grants I submitted, the grant I submitted, one of them, uh, was approved for 70000 Um So previously, when my title changed as the AODA therapist, the grant I was under wasn't supported, meaning it wasn't supporting the nine programs that I had implemented in the last two years. So the title change with this new role as the Recovery and Victim Advocate Program Coordinator um, meant that those nine programs had to be eliminated, and I had to start all over with some other uh, implemented programs that I felt and that also were a complement. Like I had to pull from the VOCA grant to develop these grants and so th- these um, programs. And so what I did is I ended up creating the uh, restorative justice circle um, from the Milwaukee LGBT Center. So it's an LGBTQ plus restorative justice circle uh, impacted by crime and violence and then impacted by um, trauma. Um, And they've never had that done before. So it's kind of a new piece. And then lastly, um, I was able to um, connect with two college campuses in the last three weeks to implement a restorative justice circle, but it's not going to be LGBT related. It's more so just restorative justice circles on college campuses. So that happened, right? Now, Grant, yes, I work for the Milwaukee LGBT Center, but some places are not really comfortable with yet including that component in their services and would rather protect clients or recoveries um, from having to be disclosed on a platform of like, yeah, this person's going to the LGBT center for, you know, and what if that person is not comfortable with identifying as LGBT as of yet? So it, it's a, it's not neglecting LGBT populations, but more so being careful for the client and the privacy of the client services. So that's pretty much what I've been up to on that part. I like that. That is a lot in the last couple of months. That's been, you have been a busy man, busy man. Um, first, like I said, you said in an email that you got the grant, so I want to congratulate you again on that. Um, dive, that dive into that a little bit. What do you plan on using with the grant? What, what are those resources going to be used for? So the uh, grant that uh, was uh, granted um, is an AODA adult reentry program. So that AODA adult reentry program, um, I'm one of the facilitators for the CCAR curriculum, which means the Connecticut Community Addiction for Recovery. That's a global designation. So if anybody were to come to the Milwaukee LGBT Center, you don't, you are encouraged to be from Milwaukee, but myself as a facilitator, I wouldn't neglect that person because they're not from Milwaukee. Um, I would still train them if they were in another country or in another state and wanted to earn that credential or that designation. So what would happen is individuals would get trained in the Recovery Coach Academy, 30 hours. They, they would get trained in ethical considerations for recovery coaches, 16 hours. Macro perspectives for family systems of support. That's more of a an addiction and mental health training, 24-hour uh, course. and then. They'd also get trained in trauma-informed care and in Narcan training. They would submit their 60 hours to CCAR and then go for examination to become a recovery coach professional. The benefit of the AODA reentry program would also entail myself signing off on 200 peer-based support services so then that way they can go on and apply for the National Certified Recovery Peer Support Specialist credential, which allows the person to not only serve as a peer support specialist, but also as a recovery recovery coach and peer specialist on a um, national slash international platform and also get to build independently on that credential. 
So you won't necessarily need um, a college degree to work in the field. In fact, the recovery coach professional designation equips and allows you to work on such a broad platform. It's not even funny. You know, NADAC is the new leading addictions field. So if individuals know or have heard of NADAC for individuals who are pursuing uh, substance abuse counseling um, or recovery uh, peer support specialist training, uh, they are going to be the uh, leading addictions field in that state. And right now they're in 43 different states. So we got how many states? 51, right? Something like that. <laughs> 43 out of 51. <laughs> There we go. That's not bad. So it, so going over the training, that sounds like it's a pretty intense training that they have to go through. Um, how many specialists do you have um, certified currently in your system? And, and the adult AODA training? Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. As we just started it. We just got it granted. Hang tight. One yes. second. Yes. Well, we want to come back. All right. Sorry about that. So the grant hasn't been, I just heard about it that I got accepted a couple of days ago. So it's not in flourishing okay, so, as of yet. But okay, before so that, that's going, that's that, how many people that. were trained, before the grant was accepted, hmm. um, we were to train, we were able to train over 148 people, but only uh-huh. 15 of those 148 applied for their RCP and only six passed that exam. Okay, awesome. So that that's really awesome. So you have almost 150 people. So that that's really good. Um, what made you want to start this? Like, what made you want to spearhead this project? Because it sounds like it's been a kind of a struggle for you to get the funding and get everything going. What made you want to start all this? Start what? Start the getting training? into the programs. Yeah, start getting to the training and produce the programs and all that stuff. When I found out that um, you didn't need a license to uh, help people, <laughs> when I found out that uh, if you want to work for a state, then yes, you want to go licensing route. Um, if you want to help people uh, deal with addiction, a license isn't required. Um, when I first started, I was a six-time felon, so I was told what I could and what I couldn't do. And so in the midst of waiting for my substance abuse counselor clinical license to go through, the state of Wisconsin kept on saying no because of my criminal history. So I found other areas and other ways to make an impact at my job and in my role. And I came across CCAR. And then it just so happened to be that the facilitator was the dean of Springfield College, where I graduated from. And then he introduced me into other areas that I could become credentialed in. And as time progressed, I just kind of thought to myself, like, is it really worth pursuing a license? I mean, I'm still going for my license, right? Because that's what Mm -hmm. I went to school for. But there's a really big, huge part of me that felt so rejected from the state where I lived at about licensing. I just kind of felt like, what else do I do, right? So I just kind of started to research certifications and um, what that would allow me to do. And I found out that certifications are, in fact, more effective than licensure holders. um, And designations have more power behind themselves than licensings do. And so when I saw that CCAR and the recovery community, the recovery coaching community had not only a state impact, it had an international and global impact. I just kind of really thought to myself, like, is it really worth worth pursuing licensing? Because if it is just licensing, then I'm only going to be able to work in one state. There might be potential possibilities to go towards reciprocity, but do I really want to be governed Do I really want people to tell me what I can and I can't do? Don't get me wrong. There are still some ethical responsibilities that you have as a recovery coach, but it's not as strict to the point where you um, are like strictly required to do certain things. Um, We don't, as a recovery coach, we don't diagnose you. We use a lot of motivational interviewing. We just ask you questions. We don't dive in your past. We don't dive into your trauma. 
we don't dive in your uh in your um symptoms we don't play with that or we don't go into that we don't use those experiences to help you navigate what's wrong with you that's not for us to figure that out it's for us to ask you thought-provoking questions as recovery coaches and for you to pick and choose what you feel like you need to do and in the, there's, that's a difference of a recovery coach and a therapist a therapist pretty much diagnoses you a recovery coach we don't do that and that's what i i found to be of more value um and that's part of why i started that to follow more uh recovery coaching i i, I, I love how you put that and like in a lame term it's like you you don't want to be that doctor doctor person these we, people have all these struggles all the time, but, but they don't want to be diagnosed. They don't want to say, hey, you're wrong for this. But people like you, that sounds like you have a heck of a life story. We're going to get to that after the break. But I would think a person in your shoes or a person that's in a struggling shoes would much rather listen to somebody that's been through it, experienced stuff in life instead of the doctor quotes. And it's like, oh, what do, why do you think that makes you feel this way? Why do you think that happened? Like, like I want to know your story. I'm going to give you my story and we can collide with that because you've been through some stuff and that person, the, the students, the kids, the adults, whoever you work with can become closer to you on that fact, knowing that you have had your struggles too. So I like that. Hopefully that's more of what you were trying to say about if I'm not wrong. No, you're right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are, go we are coming up on our first break, but after the break, I'm um, like I said, I'm going to dive a little bit into your past life. Hopefully I don't hit too many buttons, but I do want to dive into it and just kind of get to know you a little bit more. So we're going to be with you guys right after this break. You know, I tell you what, I have been working on this project for the last couple of years, and we keep promising you that this book was going to come out, but it is now out right now on Kindle edition, and I can't be more excited than I am about this book because it's a perfect timing for what our teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, basically everybody needs, and it's called When the Dark Clouds Come, The Roadmap to Hope. It's available right now on Amazon, on Kindle, and to be available August 16th, uh, actually on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, uh, Books A Million, all those sites. And just a few topics that it talks about. Chapter one, you're gonna find out how, where you are in life and how to find out how to get where you're going. Chapter eight tells you about how to take control back of your life. Chapter 11 deals with how you're dealing with anxiety and anger. Chapter 12 goes even deeper into depression. How do you deal with that? Hurt, pain, and suicide. And there are just so many things. I personally believe that every person that's listening to me, every parent, every grandparent, every school teacher, every doctor, every library, every church, every counselor, every minister needs a copy of this book and copies to hand out to the people that are going through some of their own storms of their life. When the dark clouds come, the roadmap to hope. Get this one? I'm proud of this, and this is the one book that I wish I had when I was going through all of that abuse, when I was a child, when I was a teenager. I wish I had that to be able to turn, to be able to learn how to get through my storms to hope. Roadmap to hope when the dark clouds come. Don't miss it. It's on Amazon right now.
There we go. Went muted for a second. Um, again, welcome back to Breaking the Silence with um, Mr. Kurt Williams and our awesome guest, Mr. De La Garza. Uh, we were just going over to what his new programs are, but I'm going to ask you a few more questions before we dive into your life a little bit more. Um, my first question is, what would you say to somebody listening tonight that might be struggling with the fact that they need to accept the fact that they need counseling? What would you say to that person now to get them to overcome that fear of asking for help? Uh, say that. Ask that one more time. That's a confusing so, so question. What, what would you say to somebody that is listening tonight that is fearful of asking for help? What would you say to that person? I would honestly encourage them to attend some self-help support groups um and and i say that because in my experience working as a therapist um it was likely that nine times out of ten when working with clients it was a requirement for us to um, incorporate self-help support groups for clients to attend. And it was either a self-help support group or a 12-step group, or it was a group tailored towards um, challenge or an And then allowing that person to find for themselves if therapy is appropriate or um, or maybe they just need to go to a self-help support group. I I would only suggest somebody go to go into counseling is if they were um, truly in a place where they were mentally unstable. Like if they were, you know, maybe not taking their medication as prescribed. Um, then struggling with addiction, encourage treatment um, and allow them to explore that process. And in that process, they will be able to identify if having a therapist is beneficial for them. Um, outside of that, encouraging somebody to get a counselor, um, it really depends on the discussion that I would have with the person. If they are always diving into past experiences of trauma and their decision-making was based on their trauma, then definitely I would encourage, maybe you might want to check out a therapist, uh, pursuing a therapist to help you identify how to resolve some of those uh, I like that. I like that. I think I think I might have used the wrong word, so I do apologize. I think counseling was maybe the wrong word. Maybe asking for help. So again, there are people listening out there, and I don't let that word counseling um, scare you. Just the ability to ask for help is the first step of getting over any trauma that you may have had. It was what I believe. Um, but let's dive into your past a little bit. So just give us give us a quick. Um, background about where you came from and the struggles and some of the things that you've had to come overcome in your life so far. As for myself, like really, uh, I come from, so I'm, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I apologize. It was kind of like, okay. like, and all right, sorry about that. Um, uh, I think it was just the area I was in. I wasn't able to get good reception. Sorry about that. So I'll just be uh, brief and um, keep as simple as possible. I won't take up too much of your time. Um, but born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, inner city, south side. Um, you know, drug addiction started at 12. Uh, male prostitution started at 13. Um Incarceration with youth started at 12 and a half until about 17. Uh, again, the, you know, the drug addiction, of course, paralleled. I mean, just, you know, just continued on. Um, a lot of my drug addiction actually came from trying to cover up, um, trying to cover up my sexuality 
trying to cover up the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the sexual abuse, being raised in a dysfunctional family, taught my right was wrong and my wrong was right. Um, being told that, uh, you know, that I was a fag growing up, you know, being called a sissy, um, you know, growing up like at maybe 10, 11 years old, I walked very differently. I walked really, you know, fem, feminine, right? So a lot of the boys at school, they bullied me. So by the time I turned 13, um, I started hanging around with my older cousins um, and they were gang affiliated. So I saw the kind of friends that they had. And to me, I felt like if I had friends like that, maybe I wouldn't get bullied. And so at 13, I became gang affiliated. I started hanging around with the guy, you know, the gangs. And then that's when like the journey of retaliation kind of kicked in. It was like, you know, being bullied from classmates. Um, I took a liking after a while because for so long of being bullied and not having, um, you know, ways to deal with that and no one to turn to, because I didn't have like parents that could be like, go and, you know, I wasn't taught to go and tell kids, parents, or tell other kids to leave me alone. I wasn't taught to go and tell the teacher. I wasn't taught that, you know what I mean? And I didn't have parents who resolved issues that way. My parents resolved issues with violence. So that was my way of, you know, dealing with those circumstances. Anyway, that journey just kind of really went into of, of and at some point enjoying the journey of committing crimes. It was just the way of life. It was the way that things were um, kind of just went into after that. Um, and then what else? Um, finally hit adult prison. Um, by the time I was 20, I was facing two counts of felony murder, parted to a crime, counts five and six. Um, we went to go rob a house. And in the process of that, the people I was with, they ended up killing the people in the house. And even though I was just the driver, I was facing just as much of the same time, which is life in prison, of the people that shot the people in the house, right? Um, and so just based on that experience, facing life in prison, um, you know, I mean, I, my mindset was still in the state of you don't snitch on your brother. You don't, you know, you don't, you just go with, with what you, what happened to you. You know what I mean? So I didn't have a clue at that point of what was going to happen other than I was going to be facing life. And of course, every day, yes, in the cell, I cried. <laughs> <laughs> right? They always say, like, when you get locked up, your friends are not there. Well, guess what? You're damn right. <laughs> your friends are not there when you're facing life. It's just you, God, the universe, and the people, you know, like, you have people, you know what I mean? And I did have, you know, family, of course, like my aunt and my dad and things of that nature. Um, but, you know, part of my upcoming was Again, raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, inner city, south side, then being bullied, then gang affiliation, then drug addiction. After facing that felony murder, my brother took a plea bargain to do life without the possibility of parole. Um, after that process, I was released on June 19th um, of 2000, and I went right back to the drug addiction lifestyle, went right back to drug trafficking, went right back into sex trafficking, went into, like, you know... I just felt like I wasn't the one to pull the trigger. I'm not the one who killed these people. So why do I got to change my life around? Right. Mm -hmm. um, and over the course, my brother would use this leverage of he's going to take back the plea bargain. And um, I'm like, F it. Well, if you're going to take back the plea bargain, then and I'm already going to face. I didn't know my laws or anything of that nature back then. Um, so that process of life really pushed me to continue the life of addiction. Um, so yeah, let me speed that up. By the time I hit 26, I finally went to prison for all the shenanigans and the things I did. Um, and of course, when I finally went to prison, it wasn't just like I went there and 
poof, I woke up. I had to go to prison like three separate times <laughs> until I finally realized that. And I'm laughing behind that because the insanity behind addiction, the insanity to think that it's okay to do 30 days in the house of correction and come back out and go back to living that way of life again. You know, that's just crazy how um, thinking that living on the edge is okay. You know, like living on the edge is okay. That I had that concept of, yeah, I just thought it was okay until I until I went to prison. But once I went to prison and learned how to read and write and things of that nature, um, and um, then of course I got involved with praise and worship teams and prison ministry, and that was a whole process of, you know, a journey I didn't even want to visit because I tried going to treatment centers before prison and a lot of those treatment centers were faith-based organizations and because of my sexuality I was not accepted right so it was that boohoo poor excuse well you won't accept me so why change right um but nonetheless you know that's I mean that's just part of there's a lot of other areas in my life where I also was diagnosed with clinical stage three depression at 13 years old and Attempted to commit suicide three separate occasions at 13, 14, and 17. Um, so that's part of my journey as well. But nonetheless, yeah, I just kind of went to prison. And after that, came out, and here I am today. I mean, there's more, of course, behind that, right? I could tell you a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, my relationship with Pastor Jackson and Pastor Jackson giving me a five-step process of how to accept myself and forgive others. And, um, yeah, I think if tell, it wasn't me, for tell me about prison that. And prison tell ministry about that program. Yes, please. Yeah, prison ministry was really different. So Pastor Jackson, he's um, he's bishop, right? He was he was more of a Baptist, and Chaplain Okoye, he was more Pentecostal. So we got Pentecostal and Baptist pastors and preachers in prison preaching the word of God, but also they were using real life experiences like you could talk about sex addiction in church and not be condemned right you could be you could talk about crime and violence the crimes that you committed and not be condemned like there was like a non-judgment in church and so um and you know sometimes we had pastors come in to talk about their their drug addiction and what kind of drugs they use and the life they lived and a lot of us really needed to hear that. And we didn't know that there was there was a such thing that pastors would actually do these things and then change their life around. It's kind of like we had to see the change in front of us <laughs> you know, in order for us to see change. Right. But uh, Pastor Jackson said he had um, uh, asked me to come down and see him one day. And um, he asked he wanted to know why that every, every time I was up there singing, why was I crying? And so it was funny to me that he called me out of everybody else. Um, and I kind of thought, well, there it goes. He must know that I'm the funny guy, right? The LGBT guy. <laughs> I'm thinking he's probably think he's going to deliver me from something. That was just my concept of that because that's what I've been told my whole process of growing up. Um, and, and you know, I, you know, even growing up being molested as a kid, um, I was told that maybe, maybe you're like that because of what happened to you. Like, no, 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 no. At seven years old, I knew I was different. When I was seven years old, I was not molested. At eight, nine years old, it was when I was molested. So my promiscuous behaviors became from that violation from other people growing up. Um, so I had to, I had to learn how to not always tell that I was assaulted as a kid with other people because then they would say that that's why I was like that. Like, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> there's some of us that are really born this way and there's some that are not. And there's some that are really molested and they don't go on to live like that. But there's some of us who do get molested and who do believe that we were born to identify as LGBT and be attracted to the same sex. And, you know, so, and I happen to be one of those people. So, Long story short, I thought Pastor Jackson was going to try and put me in a process of doing certain things. Um, and and so what I did is he had said, he said, um, accept your past was one, accept yourself, learn to love yourself, and then you can step to the future with discipline. And then the mm -hmm. fifth one, uh, no, it was, was um, accept yourself. 
know, accept your past, accept yourself, uh, accept the people in your life, and you know, that caused the harm to you. Forgive yourself, forgive other people, and then you can step into the future, right? And so um, that's what I did. And so in that whole process, it was just kind of like allowing God to love me and accept me where I was at in my life. Um, I had to accept the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the sexual abuse. I had to accept that my mom, my mother, my brother, my cousins, I had to accept the fact that when I was molested as a kid, that it wasn't just my dad and it wasn't just my older brother. I had to accept that it was my cousins and my uncle. I had to accept all of that. I had to accept that maybe my mom did know about it. Maybe this, maybe that. There were just so many things that I had to accept growing up that I did not want to accept. And I had to accept that this happened to me as a kid in order for healing to begin and in order for forgiveness to take place. And so then it had to go into accepting my upcoming, like what all happened in terms of my childhood experiences of being bullied and the choices I made and just taking full responsibility for that, right? Um, and then it came into, you know, um, forgiveness. I had to first forgive myself before I could forgive my father for molesting me. Right. I had to forgive. And man, let me tell you, forgiving myself was the hardest thing to do because I was told for so many years that I wouldn't go to heaven or God wouldn't accept me because of my sexuality. Wow. Yeah, I had to not only accept my sexuality, but I had to accept me the way God made me to be me to be. And when Pastor Jackson gave me that five step process, let me tell you, I went back to my unit and I stopped fighting God about my sexuality. And let me tell you, man, that was something that I believe I really needed to go through. And in the process of going through all of that, um, it really allowed me to see the amazingness of God. And when I got out of prison, my parents, like, you know, you need to go to church and you need to do this. And, you know, God's not going to bless you. I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to be the first homosexual that you're going to see that God's going to bless. And I use that word homosexual because I was called that word for so long, for so many years, that when I hear people say it sometimes, I have to ask myself, like, are they saying that because they don't know what that really means or they're just saying that out of anger, right? Yeah. But anyway, that's just kind of how my journey all started. Um, yeah, well, there, so there, there, is so, there is so much to unwrap on that, and I hope we can get to that. Um, we're going to take our second break. When we yeah, come back, cool. I, want you to, I want you to start thinking about this is we're going to we're going to hit rock bottom. OK, I want to oh, yeah, know where, nice. where you hit rock bottom at and we're going to get to that after the break. So join us at Breaking the Silence right after this break. You got it. HCI Publishing that brought you the international bestsellers A Child Called It and the Chicken Soup for the Soul series comes the latest book by Dr. Gregory Williams Shattered by the Darkness This book describes the horrific abuse that Dr. Williams suffered at the hands of his father for over 12 years and the damaging effect of keeping everything silent about that abuse for 30 years. If you're looking for that book that you can't put down, then pick up a copy of Shattered by the Darkness by Dr. Gregory Williams at all Barnes & Noble stores, Amazon, and Books A Million. Now, back to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. Welcome back to a special edition of Break the Silence. Um, we have Mr. De La Garza here, and he has just unleashed the gates on his entire life story. Okay, can you hear us, sir? Yeah, I wonder what the message is here, because I keep getting bad reception. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, it's all good. 
Yeah. <laughs> but Sweetmers, we have unwrapped your your life a little bit, but we're going to unwrap the, as my dad would say, peel back the onion just a little bit more. So tell me, what is your rock bottom? What made you realize, hey, hey listen, I have got to stop this crap and get back to a better life. What was that? I think for me, honestly, was prison. Uh, prison was part of that, and and, and uh, prison ministry was part of that as well. Um, prison ministry really gave me the opportunity to like break some some bondages that I had, not only with myself, but I had bondages with people, places, and things. Um, you know, I had a lot of toxic relationships um, that needed to be broke in order for me to, to you know, really heal, right? And it wasn't even just relationships. It was more so a relationship with myself. Um, and a lot of the relationship, and, and, and I had to develop a personal, a real personal relationship with God. And I'm not just talking about like a personal relationship, like go to church and go to Bible studies and, and pray and sing. And no, I'm talking about a personal relationship with the God of my understanding uh, on a, on a level where I could be honest about my struggles and my challenges. Um, and that my personal relationship was not dependent and based on how other people's relationships with God were and was, you know? Um, so yeah, my, that, that was pretty much like God, God was, you know, prison was my rock bottom. That was rock yeah. I feel like that happens to some people in life. That, that, that's the final wake up call when you are in that, how big are yourself? Nine by 11. When you're in that room by yourself, that's when you start realizing, hey, listen, I, I don't think I want to be here the rest of my life. And it seems like you finally get that little click on in your head, like, hey, I need to move towards something better. And it looks like you're doing quite awesome for yourself. So first, I just want to say I'm proud of you from hearing your just a little bit about your story. And again, I feel like we can talk for days on your life story. And I think I would still be amazed by some of the things that you have experienced and you've overcome. Again, I'm very proud of you for overcoming all of those. And so that kind of kind of leads me into my next question. So with all of your life experiences, how do you think that helps you with what you do today, with helping the youth, with getting these programs off the ground? How do you think that helps you? No, that's a really good question because I noticed, like, even in the clinical field, um, and, it, it, you know, when I'm working with other people, I'll give you a prime example. I had a client come into my office, um, and they were four months clean off of drugs and alcohol. And, um, in their process, they just kind of like really were unaware of unaware of like how to find themselves to be accepted with who they are and their sexuality, uh, their trauma, their, their, their sexual abuse. They couldn't necessarily find, they couldn't necessarily find who they were. Right. Like as I sat there and I listened to them express their trauma and share their trauma and share the sexual abuse that they experienced, um that 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 day is when I realized that being a recovery and victim advocate program coordinator it had to have been a god experience because I swear that day and talk that day talking to this you know talking to the client my client confirmed that I had the opportunity to disclose certain things um, to help that client um, look at their strengths and their trauma. Um, and, and from, you know, if I, and, and I, um, I'm not happy that I, I was molested, right? I'm not, but I'm grateful for those experiences 
And I'm grateful for incarceration. I'm grateful for the drug addiction. I'm grateful for all of that because it taught me how to help other people. And if it had not been for those experiences, I wouldn't be able to be where I'm at today. I love that. I that's one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time. You had to go through all these struggles, but you appreciate them because now you can take what you've experienced, the struggles, the pain, everything, but now you can just push that off on to other people and help them overcome maybe the same things that you have gone through. That is some powerful stuff right there. Um I got another one and I hope I word this correctly and don't get don't get mad at me if I don't. Um with the Population that we have, I, I feel like the sexuality of people are still frowned upon on certain beliefs and everything like that. Again, I am free spirit. You can do whatever you want. But how, what would you tell somebody that is struggling with that today? How would you have them overcome the fear of telling the world, like, hey, listen, this is who I am. I like this kind of person. I want to be with this kind of person. What would you say to somebody to help them overcome that fear of being who they are? Uh, that's a really good question. There's, there's no offense to that because, you know, myself working in the LGBT community and working with individuals who are not specifically or they're not like certain with who they are. Right. Um, some individuals just have experiences. Some of them have been sexually assaulted. Some of them have not been sexually assaulted. Some get married to a wife and then find out later that they feel like they might be bisexual. Um, in a counseling session, it's not for me to determine what's right for them because of my sexuality or my experiences, right? It's more so asking those open-ended questions um, with the client and allowing them and, and, you know, challenging the questions that they find as a for themselves to ensure that they see for themselves that there's certain of who they are, right? And so, again, I had a person come into my um, office and they expressed having related with having a wife and they've been married for like, I'm not going to say how long, but I'll just say they're, they're married and now they're bisexual. And so it wasn't for me to tell them that they were wrong. It wasn't for me to tell them anything of that nature. It was more so just asking those thought-provoking, um, open-ended questions. And then allowing, you know, time for silence to be in a session for them to take what they get from that session, right? Um, as far as somebody who's exploring who they are, I would just tell them pretty much to... Um, I wouldn't tell them who to be. That's one thing I wouldn't do. I would encourage them to either pursue therapy. That would be, right, that one question you asked earlier, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I just tell them to explore themselves and explore themselves where they feel they are safe to do so. Wow. That would be pretty much what I would say. Um, or ask them if they have a mentor. Or ask them if they have someone they can confide in that will help them to identify. Or who do they have in their circle or in their support network that they trust that can help them understand themselves a little bit better. Um, or sometimes even encouraging them maybe to go to an event if they feel like they're similar to same sexes or not same sexes. Um, but the one thing I always encourage them to do is to make sure that they notify when they are going somewhere. So then that way, someone knows that they're at at all times. I love that. That is a powerful answer. Uh, I want to appreciate, I want to thank you for the amazing show that you gave us tonight. Your words of encouragement, your honesty, your disability to just spread everything out and said, this is who I am. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I have one more question for you before we sign off is how do we get a hold of you? If anybody has any questions personally for you, how would we get a hold of you? Uh, my email address is Tito, T-I-D-O dot recovery coach at gmail.com. Right. Um, or you can call me at my office number, which is 414-736-5761. If I don't answer my phone, um, 
text message is great or email um or if they can't reach me say for example they email me and text me and they somewhere they get lost in spam they can always reach out to you and your dad and they can y'all can reach out to me i mean i you know <laughs> i mean i'll i'll respond back and then it's likely that i'm gonna respond back and it, you know if they say where they're from and things of that nature that'll help me to identify where they got my information from i love it again thank you for the amazing show and thank you for being so open with me tonight I know it's a little bit of a struggle with having me and not my father on the show, but again, you've been a wonderful guest. Um, I want to end the show with um, just two quick quotes. Um, one that I, I heard the other day, I haven't got out of my mind, and it's been around for a while, is by um, Mark Luther King. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. And if you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, keep moving forward. I heard that on a TV show and I just have not got it out of my head. And I think it's just a great quote and great thing just to take forward with you into this week. And as my dad always ends every single show, every single week, just always remember there is hope. Thank you again for having me as your guest tonight. And I want to thank you guys for having an awesome guest here. And I just want to wish you everybody have a great week and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence with Dr. Gregory Williams. To contact Dr. Williams, dial 832-396-6525 or email him at shatteredbythedarkness at gmail.com. And don't forget to join us each Sunday night at 8 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on BBS Radio Station 1 for the next episode of Breaking the Silence.